Hey, good morning, Crossroads. Nice, rainy Lord's Day morning for us. Some of you may be aware that my daughter Libby married your lead pastor. So we're kind of related to them. Which meant that when we moved to Grand Rapids about nine years ago, we didn't have to church shop. We didn't have a choice. Like, we were stuck. You know, you don't dish your kids, right? But I love to tell people it's a great stuck. We love this church. We love the teaching. We love the worship. My, my own soul was lifted this morning in our community worship together. We love the vision of this church. So all of that to say I count it a great honor this morning just to play a part in God's work through this church to your life and been praying that in this message soon I would disappear and you'd hear from God. So, let's say that you and I, just the two of us, we're having coffee together, you pick the place, let's do Starbucks, and we hadn't met yet, and so I say to you, like, who are you? I wonder what you would say. My guess is I'd get the doctor, lawyer, butcher, baker, student, homemaker kind of answer. And if you were to answer me like that, like, who I am is what I do kind of thing, then I would have to, I hope, kindly say back, well, really? Really? Because if who you are is what you do, who will you be when you don't do that anymore? You know, somehow our sense of identity needs to be deeper than what we do. It needs to transcend what we do. And this question, like, who are you, is not a throwaway question because we tend to live out the sense of identity that we carry. And so your life will be marked by whatever identity you embrace. Like, if you grew up in a family where your dad was always saying, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, you embrace that sense of identity, you don't expect much of yourself, right? Like, doing stupid things is like what you do. If you grew up in a family where your dad said, you're so brilliant, you're so brilliant, you remind me a lot of myself. then you tend to think that's who you are and you live it out. If at, over coffee you said, Joe, thanks for asking, I'm a fashionista. Then you would shop like a fashionista. You would dress like a fashionista. You'd judge everybody else's clothes by your perception of yourself, at, right? It's a, so it's not a throwaway question. This sense of identity is highly important. And I want to add that the, the, a sense of identity is transformational in your life. I grew up in church world. My dad was a pastor, so those of you who have grown up in church world know that pastors' sons are called... Good for you guys. That's great. PKs, preacher's kid. And I want you to know that nobody in my dad's church ever said that nicely. <laughs> and I'd like to have a $5 bill for every time... Somebody in my dad's church said, young man, and I always knew I was in trouble when they started like that, like, young man, you're the pastor's son. You ought to be an example. I was only five. I didn't want to be an example. I was like, <laughs> but, but, but the drill was, like, if they could get me to embrace the identity of being a pastor's son, it would transform my life. 
and I'd stop embarrassing them, and I would start being an example to you. So I hope you get the point that this matter of identity is deeply critical for every aspect of your life. One of my favorite stories from political history uh, is from the UK when Margaret Thatcher, who was the prime minister there, and only a few of us old-timers remember that probably, so hopefully you've been reading your history books. But she was running for office and went to a nursing home to visit the old folks to drum up some votes. And, uh, of course, they were, like, ecstatic to have the prime minister visit their nursing home, except for one lady sitting over in a corner, totally glazed over, like, totally unimpressed. So finally, the story goes, Thatcher goes over, shakes the lady's hand, lady still is, like, glazed over. And finally, Thatcher, maybe a little annoyed, said, do you know who I am? And the lady kind of came to and said, no, but that nurse over there helps us with those kinds of things. <laughs> so I came all the way from Cornerstone to say to you, maybe Jesus needs to help us with this kind of thing, right? So let's open up God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 4. Last night I got spanked because I started to read and didn't ask everybody to stand. And somebody, right, like two-thirds of the way back on the aisle said, We stand at crossroads. <laughs> so I don't take that kind of stuff. Remain seated and we'll read the word here. <laughs> Let's stand together and read God's word. Just a brief passage. Matthew writes that Jesus, verse 18 of Matthew 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, as, who as we know is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So just take a break here. Let's say you were walking down the street in their fishing village, and you encountered them, and you'd say, who are you? They would say, thanks for asking, we are fishermen. Well, Jesus is about ready to change all of that sense of identity. And he said to them, follow me and let me make something of your life. I'll make you fishers of men. Let me take you from fish to people. How many of you think that's an upgrade? <laughs> Unless maybe you know some people. So he said, follow me. Let me make something of your life. I'll make you fishers of men. And the text says that immediately they left their nets and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. You may be seated. So Christ dramatically interrupts their lives and issues this call, follow me. At that moment, seared into the depths of their spiritual selves was the transformational identity that they would no longer think of themselves as fishermen, but that they would think of themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. That would take them through the rest of their life. That transcendent, deep sense of identity, no longer fishermen, followers of Jesus. And I just want you to know that when Christ welcomed you into his embrace at the cross, he also issued this this call of authentic Christianity, follow me. 
seared into the psyche of our souls was the intent of God that we would no longer be Baptists, CRCs, Reformed Church, Wesleyans, doctors, lawyers, butcher, bakers, but we would know and, and embrace the sense that we are followers of Christ and live out that transfor- transformational identity. So over that cup of coffee, if you had said, hey, Joe, thanks for asking, I'm a follower of Jesus, <laughs> that would have been a high-five moment. And I would say, spot on, that's exactly who we are, followers of Christ. And I love the transformational realities that come when we embrace that kind of identity. And I should probably pause and just let the Spirit speak to you and just ask you, would that have been your answer when I asked you who you are? And welcome you to embracing this Christ-intended identity that he gives us as followers of him. So let's unwrap this a little bit. Um, One thing that strikes me in the text, it says that immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. I I think that's interesting. By the way, let me encourage you to read the narratives like you're there. Put your sandals on. You know, slow down. Stop reading lots of words. And live in the moment. So here the guys are busy about their profession, Jesus comes along, does this dramatic interruption, says, follow me, and uh, they say yes immediately. So when I live in that moment, I'm going like, I'm not sure I would have done that. I mean, like, really? Like, maybe I'd want, Lord, could we discuss this? Like, what, what will this mean? Is it hard? Is it easy? Do I get weekends off? Can I visit my mother? Is there a 401k plan? It's, you know, I'd want to have a little bit more information here. And if I really wanted to sound spiritual, I would think, wonderful invitation. Could I have a week to pray about this, right? <laughs> you know, like. So does it hit you, though? I think immediately they drop their nets and embrace the identity of a follower of Jesus Christ. So why? Well, one thing strikes me is that Jesus must be, this personal encounter with this Jesus, you must be impressed with he is, he is a very compelling person. I don't know what your vision and image is of Jesus. I have to say that growing up, you know, in Sunday school and seeing the pictures of Jesus on my Sunday school papers, you know, neatly trimmed beard, nifty white robe, the cool knot, in the rope and cool sandals. And I always have to, this is probably just me, but I always have this sense growing up that Jesus was this kind and loving and merciful and deferring. By the way, I'm glad he is all of those things. But I never found that real compelling. I'm going like, nice guy. I'm not sure I want to play golf with him on Tuesday. <laughs> By the way, the more I've gotten to know this authentic Jesus, I just have to tell you, I'd be honored to carry his bag if you want to know the truth. So I, I don't know what your image of Jesus just, is. You just need to know how compelling this Christ is. These guys were fishermen. They weren't out fly fishing on vacation. This was their business. Fishermen in those days were like the bikers of their day. You know, they probably met at Ruby's cafeteria and, you know, at 5 a.m. every morning with the tan line right here from their fishing cap, bulging muscles, because they haul in these nets by hand every night. 
probably had a huge tattoo. Well, if they read Leviticus, maybe not, but <laughs> I'm backing off that one real quick right there. Like, <laughs> uh, but these were the tough guys of their day. So here are these tough fishermen meet Jesus, and they leave it all to follow him. How compelling he must be. Think of Matthew, the tax collector, who had betrayed his own people for his personal greed to become a tax collector for the oppressive Roman regime who, 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 who just sacked Israel with exorbitant taxes, and then they'd add their own assessments. A guy like Matthew would rip off his grandmother for an extra $5 bill, and Jesus walks by his tax booth. So compelling. He leaves it all to follow him. Or Simon the Zealot. Do you know why he was called Simon the Zealot? Because he was a member of the underground resistance force. His life was committed to overthrowing Roman impression. He'd spill his blood on the streets of Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. He probably wore fatigues with the Star of David. He had Uzis in his garage. I mean, I don't know, but he'd be that kind of guy. If he lived in our state, he'd belong to the... Michigan militia, exactly. And Christ encounters him. Says, Simon, follow me. And he drops it all to join a far more significant revolution. I don't want to milk this too much except to say, please understand how compelling Jesus is. Women adored him. Women felt safe with him. Crowds followed him and sat Bellbound at his teaching. And I want you to know if Jesus were to walk through that door there right now, down this center aisle, I wonder what you would do. Like, would we give him a standing ovation? Or high five him? Or maybe like, oh, where are those five questions I've always wanted to ask Jesus? Like, we wouldn't do any of that. So awesome. So amazingly compelling, we'd all fall on our faces before this compelling Jesus. And when you hear him say, follow me, I want you to know that this is a compelling person like no one else who is calling you to this identity. But there's another, maybe even more significant dynamic to this. Immediately, they dropped their nets and followed him. It comes out of Jewish history, and we have this recorded in the Mishnah about 70 AD, recording what was the normal practice. Jewish boys would go to school, and the schools were all taught by rabbis. And one of the purposes was to make them Jewishly literate. So by the end of, they go from the ages of five to the passage through to manhood, about 13 or 14, and uh, uh, historical literature says that most of these boys going through school would have memorized the whole Torah. Significant. They knew all the heroes of Israel. And, and then by the time they got through that, at the end of that school term, when they passaged into adulthood, the really brilliant ones had the privilege of asking the rabbi if they could become a follower of the rabbi. There was no greater honor for a Jewish young man to join what to this day in Orthodox Judaism is a subculture of Judaism known as followers of the rabbis. And so they, they, if they were chosen, then if the rabbis said yes, they would move into the rabbinical compound, 
As a follower, they would so enthralled with this rabbi, they would sit at his feet and hang on every word of his teaching. They would count it the highest honor to, do, to serve the rabbi in even the most menial kinds of tasks. And so admiring the rabbi, they would start becoming like the rabbi. They'd gesture like him and pronounce the Hebrew words like him. My friend Ed Dobson, who's now with the Lord, was in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall. And he said, I saw this old rabbi hunched over, black hat, you know, the braids coming down. And behind him were five young men walking like this behind the rabbi. Because they were followers of the rabbi. Anybody connecting the dots here about maybe what was in mind to be a follower? Uh, So that was the brilliant ones. If you weren't a brilliant graduate, and you were a, help me here, loser, right? Then you went into the trades, like these guys. They became fishermen. These guys hadn't made the cut. They hadn't made the grade. The most honorable thing that could happen to a Jewish boy had passed them by. So put it in that context for this rabbi, this emerging rabbi Jesus, to walk on the shoreline and to look at them and say, follow me. There could be no greater honor. Clearly, obviously, they would immediately drop their nets to follow this Christ. And as I was thinking about that, I was struck with the fact that I was born a loser. I was born in sin, unalterably separated from God, hell-bound, lost in the bent, destructive ways of my own instincts. And then I thought of the day that Jesus walked through the fishing village of my heart and looked at me and said, Joe, follow me. What a great honor that we have all experienced if you've come to know him, that the king of glory, this risen rabbi, has invited you to the honor of becoming a follower of him. It's no small thing. So no wonder they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. And would it be a wonder if you would accept the salvation and yet not embrace the identity of being a follower of him? I wonder. So what would this mean? Earlier I said that embracing the identity of being a follower of Christ is transformational. It is highly transformational. The Greek word follow that we have in this text has a couple of nuances that I think are highly instructive for us. One of the nuances is the definition that following in this language meant to come after somebody. So Jesus is saying, come after me. And, and really what he's talking about here is I desire to be the passionate pursuit. I desire that you be the, pa- I be the passionate pursuit of your life. That above and beyond every dream, above and beyond every goal, ultimately at the top of it all, I am pursuing Jesus Christ and coming after him. Now, I think when you first accepted Christ, my guess is he was everything to you, right? 
You wanted to know him better. You wanted to go deeper with him. You wanted to sense his presence more fully. And he was the passionate pursuit of your life. And I ask, what happened? So like you're going after him, maybe you've stopped to go in orbit around him. That does happen. And the interesting thing about being an orbital Christian is you can always find someone in an orbit farther out than you and feel really good about yourself. So I'm here this morning to deorbit you and to put you back on the track of making Jesus the passionate pursuit of your life, to go deeper, to spend time meditating on him, to ask him to speak to you, to listen to his voice, to adore him more, to be more awestruck in wonder with him, to to count it the highest privilege that he reached in and rescued you, all those wonderful things that only Jesus can provide to your life, that you would be coming after him. Paul Hebert at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School wrote an article some time ago in which he was scoping out authentic Christianity, and he said that a lot of us think of our Christianity as being like something with boundaries, like walls, like in my words, like, when you got saved, you got thrown into this box called Christianity. Walls, boundaries of doctrine, really important, of biblical rules, as long as they're the biblical rules, really important. And he said, so you think, most people think that authentic Christianity is staying in the box, not climbing out over the walls. He said, nothing could be further from the truth. He says, authentic Christianity is Christ at the center and an aggressive pursuit of a deeper, richer relationship with this person called Jesus Christ. That's why being a follower is so transformative. That suddenly, whatever you were pursuing, those things that have disappointing ends, ultimately, that he is the one that you're tracking for. I welcome you to that as a follower of Christ. Uh, The Greek word to follow also has another sense to it. It can mean to be found in the way with somebody. So Christ is saying, come, be found in a way with me. I love the imagery of this way imagery, like waymaker Jesus, path treader Jesus. And I hear him boldly, without shame, proclaim in John 14, I am Come on, help me here. I can't carry this ball myself, right? Like, I am the way. I am the way. I find it interesting that while once in Acts, Christians were branded by the pagans as Christians, right? They didn't go into some smoke-filled room with a whiteboard and say, how will we brand ourselves? They were so much like Jesus that the world just kind of gave him Jesus' name. But that's the only time. Six times in the book of Acts, followers of Jesus are called people of the way. And he says, I want you to be found in a way with me, which means maybe there are some other ways. And sure enough, there are. There's the way, all the ways of this world, the the ways of our own broken instinct, these wide, highly trafficked, gridlocked ways that everybody walks Ignoring the sign at the front of that way that says there is a way that seems right unto you, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And he took the machete of his wisdom and refused to walk those ways and 
through the jungle of our world cut brand new ways. And he looks over his shoulder and says, is anybody in the way with me? That's what it means to be. And it's so transformational. If accepting your identity as a follower, you are committed to be founding in a way with him. But it will be challenging. For instance, let me just do some vignettes out of the narratives of Jesus to, to demonstrate the trans, wonderful transformational power of embracing this identity and being found in a way with him. If we just go one chapter over to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ makes this statement. <clears throat> he says, you have heard it said that you should love your friends and hate your enemies. <laughs> so that's the easy thing, right? That was like street talk of that day. That was a, a proverb. Uh, it was kind of like, I don't get mad. I just get even. Same thing, right? Then he went on, but I say unto you, now here's a clue, anytime you're reading the Gospels and you hear Jesus say, but I say unto you, that's the sound of his machete, cutting a whole new path. But I say unto you, you should love your enemies, brace yourself here, you should love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who despitefully use you. He walked that path all the way to the cross. Is there anybody in the house today that's really thankful that God has loved his enemies through Jesus Christ? Where would we be? I could just hear you say, but you don't know about my enemies. You don't know the people that have ripped my life off, my parents, whatever. They don't deserve this. For me to forgive them and to love them. I fully agree. They do not deserve it. But that shouldn't stop you from following Christ and being transformed into a loving forgiver like he is a loving forgiver. What you need to do is realize you don't, you don't forgive people because they deserve it. <laughs> if you did that, you'd never forgive anybody. And you'd be locked into this broad, cancerous way of bitterness and revenge and getting even, all the... The downsides of that for you. But we forgive and love our enemies because we're followers of Christ. Because he did that for us. Because that's what he's like and we're committed to being like him. So you go to these people in your life who've ripped you off and say, by the way, I, I've really embraced this new identity and I want you to know that I forgive you and I will love you. But I want you to know it has nothing to do with your lame self. <laughs> Actually, I don't recommend that you say that. <laughs> but in a sense, that's how it works. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with who I am. That I'm a follower of Christ. And I want to be found in the way with him. So Christ goes on to say, love your enemies so that you can be like your Father who is in heaven. Who makes the rain to fall on both the bad people and the good people. And makes the sun to shine both on the bad people and the good, how transformational is that? Living out this identity of follower of Christ transforms me. It finds me in another way with him. I'm just selecting three little vignettes here. Uh, and that's one of my favorite stories about Jesus in Luke chapter 12. All right, by the time you get to Luke chapter 12, Jesus is like the magnet rabbi. I mean, everybody wants to hear him. Crowds follow him. 
And so, again, live in the text. There's Jesus with this massive crowd around him, and one guy in the crowd gets, catches Christ's eye and gets to say something to Jesus. This, this is like huge. And so the guy yells out, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> I'm going like, dude, seriously, if you get one shot at Jesus, not a good thing to say. <laughs> I think if I ever had one shot at Jesus, I'd like to ask something so profound that he would go like, hmm, I never thought of that. <laughs> Could we have dinner? Let's talk about this. And then Jesus used that moment to get out the machete of his wisdom and do a little work. Because he said this, take heed, warning, warning, be on your guard against greed. It's interesting, the Greek word for greed literally means more. <laughs> How descriptive is that? Like, so, like, do I have enough? I never have enough. No matter how much I have, I don't have enough. College students, you saved up all your hard-earned money to buy that way-too-cool nifty sweater that costs $180. And you wear it with pride until Sally shows up in her $220 sweater. And you're going like, shoot. I wish I had a sweater like that. Do I have a witness, by the way? Don't leave me up here by myself, okay? Like, like that more, that demon of, of more. Marty and I, several years ago, had the privilege. It wasn't huge, but it was like we had the privilege of building a house. It was kind of like our dream house, small dream, but it was our dream house. Put everything in it we wanted to and loved it. And I hate to tell you this. I'll never forget driving through a neighborhood about a year after we were living in this wonderful house that we, it was the that we had always wanted a house like this. And I'd drive through this neighborhood. No, I'm not going to tell you about this. No, like, <laughs> no I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I'm a little ashamed of this. But I'm, I'm driving by these houses, and I'm going like, gee, wish I had a house like that. Like, what's wrong with us? I do have a witness here, don't I, on this kind of stuff? This demon of more that my... Life, I'm never set. My life is about more. And Christ said, take heed and beware about greed. And then he makes this countercultural, counterintuitive statement. I know how we listen to messages. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. If you're out, you got to get in now and hear this. Are you in? I'm not going forward till you're in. So he says, take heed and beware of greed. For a person's life consists not in the abundance of the things that they possess. Amen. What? And then he told a story about the rich. Now, we all think of him as a rich fool, but I guarantee nobody in his village thought he was a fool. He's the most successful guy in town. Write a book. I want to know how you did this. I'd like to be like you. Could I be rich? And he had such a phenomenal harvest that he had to tear down all of his barns and build, build bigger ones. So here's a Sunday morning question. How many of you think he already had enough? This is not a hard question. 
He did. I mean, his barns were full. He had to tear them down and build bigger ones, right? I wonder if it ever crossed his fallen little brain that maybe he had enough. And he could give this windfall away, build a hospital, do something for orphans. You know, did it ever cross his brain? No, the more build it. And then he said, I'll eat, drink, and be merry. Threw himself a little party. And guess, an uninvited guest showed up. It was God. Scary thought. And God had a different perspective on this much moreness guy. He said, thou fool. Not, it wasn't a fool because he had stuff. He said, thou fool. This night your soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be? And then the text says, he said this because this farmer was not rich toward God. Now, I think maybe the disciples were enjoying this moment because he's kind of like going after the pagans, right? Like, Lord, I love it when you do that turn or burn sermon. Like, seriously. <laughs> do the forsake or bake one right now. Like, <laughs> because at this point, he turns to the, the disciples, these followers, they, these most dedicated followers this world has ever known. And he says, but what's wrong with you guys? Same problem. You're so distracted from what's important because you're worried about where you get your next meal, where you're going to buy your next set of Birkenstocks, where you're going to buy your next robe. He says, you guys are just like this. You're like totally distracted. And then he makes this wonderful series of statements. Your father knows you have need of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And he moves, and it's kind of like taken by the nap of the neck off this wide, deeply rutted road to greed, to more, to greed, to greed. Lifts them up and puts them on this Jesus way of generosity. That life is not in the kingdom about getting more. Life is using what I have to bless others and to be generous and to give. And how many of you know that if you look at Jesus walking that way of generosity all the way to the cross, would you agree with me that the cross may be the most generous thing you've ever heard about? If I was going to make a list of the characteristics of God like theologians do, and I've read some of those lists, I've never seen, I would put in there generosity. Our God is a generous God. I mean, the cross by itself is enough to prove the point. The Bible says he's the God of the best robe, the overflowing cup, like he's not stingy. And Jesus was generous, generous with his time, generous in his attitudes. Instead of being judgmental and merciful to the lost sinner, he was just fully, holistically generous. And you listen to the sound of his machete, and he looks over the shoulder, his shoulder wonders, is anybody in the way with me? Being transformed into a forgiving, generous person because you've embraced the identity of following him. It's wonderful. Uh, can I do one more? Okay, that's three of us. I like. <laughs> the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, the sermon will continue. <laughs> so one of my other favorite moments in the life of Jesus, and where I hear his machete at work, is uh, in Matthew chapter 20. 
where James and John have a desire to be the big shots in the kingdom. And so they come to Christ with this request, only interestingly enough, they bring their mother to ask the request. So she says to Christ, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on your right, the other on your left when you come into the kingdom. Now what she was asking for in a monarchy, which we're not familiar with, but whoever sits to the right and left of the king or the queen uh, are the most powerful people aside from the king or the queen. They have all the information, they have the leverage, they have the networking. They were asking to be the most affirmed, the most headlined, the most famous, the most powerful people in the kingdom. And their mother asked the question. I can just hear James standing next to his mother. Mom, mom, don't ask that kind of question. He does not like these kinds of questions. <laughs> I don't think so. I think maybe James is, mom, mom, I don't think he heard that, like, ask that again. And the reason I think that would have been the desire of his heart is because later, a couple verses down, Matthew tells us, that when the other ten disciples heard of this request, they were moved with indignation, deeply ticked about this. So why were they so upset? This is not hard. This is, they wanted it. And James and John had beat them to the punch and played lowball by bringing their mother to ask the question... <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? Like, here these deeply committed followers of Christ, these, these disciples, though following Christ on foot, not in their hearts, all desired to be affirmed, to be the headliners, to be paid attention to, to have power, to lord it over other people. This too is a demon that not many of us escape. This affirm me, this self-centered, this road to self-centered where you think your life ought to be a magnet and everybody ought to come to you and bless you and help you and affirm you and tell you how great you are. And if they don't, then that's a problem. And Jesus takes out his machete again, He's, it's, the text says he gathered his disciples together. I think I might have just fired them all and started over again. But in mercy, anybody glad that he doesn't do that with us? Mercy calls them together and he says, the princes of the Gentiles operate like this, lording it over other people. But it shall not be so among you. That's another clue to his machete. That's the sound. It shall not be so among you. If you want to be great in my kingdom, he says, then you must count yourself as a servant. That the way up in my kingdom is down. I'm not looking for headliners. I'm looking for helpers. I'm looking for people who have reproved this deep sense of self-centered existence and realized that I've gifted you to be a blessing to others. Instead of you worrying about why people aren't blessing you. And I've called you to serve. And then he makes this statement. He says, and it's kind of shocking if you think about it. Even as the Son of Man, talking about himself. Even as the Son of Man came not 
to be served. Interesting, isn't it? How many of you think that Christ could have landed on this planet, set up a throne room in Jerusalem with all the glory and grandeur of a throne room and demanded that the world come and pay homage at his feet, bringing expensive gifts to honor him? How many of you think he would have had the right to do that? He would have had the right to do that. He's God. Will you ever recover from this theological reality that this king came, Philippians chapter 2, and embraced the identity of a servant? Servant king? How can that be? Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve all the way down that way to the cross to give his life a ransom for many. So what that tells me, it doesn't make any difference where you are in the organizational ladder. If the king of glory came as a servant, you better think of yourself as a servant. doesn't make any difference where you fall on the family ladder. If, he came, if you're a follower of him and you're in his way, then you serve your family, you serve your spouse. You serve those around you. Before coming to Cornerstone, I had the privilege for several years to serve at Moody Bible Institute, incidentally, as the president. It was a really bad year for presidential choices at Moody, but that's where I landed. Anyway, so I remember one, and what's right down, downtown Chicago. So all of our buildings were vertical. My office was on the ninth floor. And I would ride the elevator every day, and those elevators had like stainless steel doors that got fingerprints on them all the time. So I remember riding, getting on an elevator one day, and the doors closed, and a housekeeping lady was cleaning the stainless steel doors. And she was about 4'10", so she had this 18-inch shortfall at the top, you know, that she couldn't reach. And I'm going like, pity. Pity that I got on. I mean, if some common employee got on, they could help her. I mean, I'm depressed. I don't do those kind of things. People clean my office. Well, actually, knowing about Christ and embracing the idea, I'm not saying this to my pat on the back. I'm just saying this is what followers do. You know, I knew that I really wasn't depressed. I was a follower of Jesus Christ. Followers of Christ serve. She had a need. So I said, can I help you with that? With a relatively shocked look on her chest, she handed me the squeegee and the rag. So I start doing them, and then the doors open on fourth floor, and people start coming in. I just kept doing it. A couple months later, same lady, same elevator, same drill. <laughs> Actually, we fired, we fired the supervisor that put the 410 woman on this job, but <laughs> not really. of course not, of course not. And I remember, you know, I remember saying to her, seeing her in the hallway later, I said, hey, how are the elevators coming? She said, great, everybody's helping me with the elevator door. It's like, <laughs> see, like serving is contagious, you know, it's this wonderful thing. You know, if life is all about me and my position, if life's all about you and your position, then we tend to get alienated and live in silos. This wonderful thing is my life is about blessing and helping no matter what. I mean, if Jesus the King could do this, then it brings us together, doesn't it? It's like wonderful, so transformative. And Christ served us all the way to the cross and rose again and will come again and take us, this servant king. And as a follower, if I think I'm a follower of him, then 
There's a lot of things that transform, but I'm a forgiving, generous, serving person. And I think that's, thank God, a great way to live in community. So just one more thing. One thing I noticed in the text, after I'd read the text a lot of times, Matthew says, and immediately they left their nets to follow him. So here's another Sunday morning question, like, could he have just said, immediately they followed him, and it would have made sense? Thank you. Yes, of course. So I'm, I remember asking myself, what's with the net talk in this verse? Like, why are nets? And then it hit me. Then it hit me. As long as these disciples were clinging to their nets, they were going nowhere with Jesus Christ. We had to hear that they dropped their nets. And I remember seeing that in the text and sensing it's like the Holy Spirit put me in a full Nelson and just pinned me to the wall and asked me this penetrating question, Joe, what are those nets in your life that inhibit and prohibit you from being a devoted follower of Christ? And I ask you that question this morning. Nets are those things in our attitudes, actions, habits, Nets are those things that inhibit and prohibit us from being devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if this morning you would be honest enough and authentic enough to identify those nets, or maybe it's a major net, and be willing to drop that net to follow him. I know that people don't like to do this kind of thing in church, but So if you don't want to do it, you get a hall pass. But if you don't mind, just take your hands and hold them like this. And in the quietness of this moment between you and the Lord, if you would be willing to identify that net or those nets that you're hanging on to. You know, while I was taking you through the transforming power of this followership identity, you might have said to yourself, I would like to be a devoted follower, but if I do, I'll have to fill in the blank, and I'm not sure I want to do that. That's your net. That's what your net is. And I'm just going to pause for several seconds, and if you are willing to hear his call afresh, follow me, and you're willing to drop those nets just symbolically, Turn your hands and let those nets fall to the floor. I hope when they clean this place up today, they go, what are these nets, all these nets doing on the floor? And I might just tell you, that followers, authentic followers, are netless believers. But beware, on the journey with Christ, Satan will be there from behind a bush to hold out a little net, say, you won't, nobody's netless their whole life. You'll enjoy this net, take this net, and you'll take it and realize that you trip over it, and then you'll drop it again, Lord willing. I think the road to glory is littered with the nets that we keep dropping to make sure we stay in the way with him. 
Amen? Do you know the song, I've Decided to Follow Jesus? Can you sing it like mean it, sing it? All right, I'm going to try to start us on this. This could be dangerous, but let's stand together, and this will be our affirmation of embracing the identity of following Christ. And as Jude closes his one-chapter epistle, I want to close the service with his words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or able to keep you netless, my words, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.